spent a lot of time uh, talking about the Logos, uh, Logos being the word that John uses for word at the beginning of his gospel. Uh, in the Greek, I mean, if you left it in Greek, it would be in the beginning was the Logos. Um, and we talked about uh, all the uh, thought going around, you know, in the civilized world at the time uh, about uh, this archetypal uh, idea uh, in, in uh, uh, as Plato put it, and uh, the geniuses only got so far; they could only take it to a certain level, and then they had to leave off, you know, not knowing what this all meant. But then along comes this fisherman, who was a mystic, and he was not a learned man, but the officials saw that he had been with Christ. Uh, and he says, okay, this Logos that you've been talking about, I'm going, I am telling you, this Logos is God, this Logos is the Messiah, this Logos is Jesus of Nazareth. And that's how he starts his, uh, his uh, uh, gospel. And uh, I want to throw in a quote, or at least a paraphrase from Kierkegaard, uh, at this point, uh, this is a wonderful thing. He wrote that the work of a genius always becomes mundane, but the work of the apostle is new in every generation. And this is what sets John, the, the poor fisherman, apart from the geniuses. Um, so, what we're going to do now is actually talk about the prologue. <laughs> so, what a relief. Um, and what I want to do is there's going to be a lot of kind of drive-by reading within these chapters. It's never going to be uh, more than one or two verses usually. So what I would like to do is have a uh, volunteer for every chapter to do the drive-by readings. And I'll handle everything else. What do you mean, drive-by reading? I'll say... Read verse 21. Okay. So, do I have any volunteers? Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Start uh, then by reading verse 1. Yes, John 1, verse 1. Maybe somebody else, if they're there... John 1-1? Yes. Uh-huh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes. So, obviously, this is has a close connection to Genesis 1, 1-3. through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters... And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
So, you know, it's, it's a direct correlation with Genesis 1, verse 1. But also now verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so this is a verse about creation. Mm-hmm. Just, just, I'm sure just by coincidence. Genesis 3 is God speaking the creation. And God said, let there be light. So the word, uh, God uses the word to begin creation. And John picks that up. He, uh, with the word, all things were made through the word. And nothing was ma- uh, made that was made without the word. So there's another correlation there between uh, 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 John's opening and the opening of Genesis. Uh, so he's beginning, he's beginning from the very beginning of his gospel to draw in the Old Testament right, right off the bat. And this continues uh, throughout the gospel, uh, particularly in the middle section. Um, so uh, all things were made through him uh, uh, and without him uh, was nothing made that was made. Uh, this word with, it's, I mean, it says without, but I mean, the, the positive uh, approach would be with. Uh, that's uh, uh, a word of cooperation. Uh, it's not, not, not necessarily that means that they were in the same proximity. It goes beyond that. It is, it is a, uh, uh, indicates cooperation. And so we have cooperation also in the creation story. Uh, Genesis one twenty six says, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This indicates cooperation. That would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, then also in Colossians 1.15, Paul writes, he, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the image of God, according to Paul, is what they saw in the face of Jesus. And this is the image of, uh, in which all of mankind was made. And not just the way he looked, but his image in all aspects. You know, his... Uh, uh, physicality, his spirituality, his personality, his purity. This was how man was made, uh, fully in his image. So you're talking about before the fall, that would be a perfect image. Right, right. Right. Uh, So, uh, and then uh, John also brings in uh, the Trinitarian aspect of it in verses 33 and 34. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, so this is John the Baptist speaking, and he's testifying of Jesus. But he who sent me is the Father, upon whom you see the Spirit descending is the Spirit, and testified that this is the Son of God. So there's the Son. There, there's a full-bore Trinitarian statement uh, that John uses through John the Baptist. 
So uh, we'd stop there and see if there's any any comments about any of that. Well, this implies also that John the Baptist would have been a Trinitarian preacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it more than implies it, actually. <laughs> I think okay. it's right there. <laughs> it's right there. It's in your face. John the Baptist was not much on subtlety. No. No. He was not a subtle preacher. Okay, Charlotte, if you could uh, read uh, verse 3 again. Okay, so we can tag on to this, Colossians 1, 16. Again, Paul, for by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through and for him. Wow. What does it mean then, what do you think it means by this term or this phrase, for him? Mm-hmm. Now they emanate, you know, from the bad person, from sin. Mm-hmm. He'll use them. Mm-hmm. You know. And what uh, what would be the ultimate usage you think that he would have for creation? Well, as I have, I mentioned that Acts seventeen twenty six twenty seven million times, but there he clearly says that he chose the time and place we would live almost as if he puts us in a crucible of pressures. Then it says he did this so that men would seek him. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that he uses everything in our creation to put us in condition that we would seek him in the hope that we might grow for him and find him. Mm-hmm. And to do it to glorify him? Ultimately, yeah, that's that's a good word, a single word answer. Uh, any other thoughts about yeah. that usage idea? A usage of what? Bad the, the creation. The whole creation. Yeah. To reveal his son. To what purpose? Salvation of man. Through what means? Crucifixion and resurrection. Yes. <laughs> that, 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 for me, that's the best answer. Crucifixion uh, he set He set the world in place mm-hmm. for him. For the purposes of the crucifixion, and those of you who know me know it's because of a it is a demonstration toward his enemies. Yeah. Uh, he humiliates his enemies through the crucifixion. He makes a show of them mm-hmm. in the cross mm-hmm. and through the church. So this is this is my ultimate answer for okay, that. So you're talking about enemies that were there before the foundation of the world. This the powers and principalities. Okay. Um, the, from the rebellion of heaven, I guess, against yeah. half the, half the third, half of the third of the angels fall. But I, but my, I guess my question goes back to just that one. You know, if God is complete in himself, why does he have to make something else? Well, that's the question. You know. <laughs> why? <clears throat> James Weldon Johnson, in his poem, The Creation, he says, God says, I'm lonely. Wrong. Be a man. Incorrect. Incorrect. Wrong. I would say wrong is 
Well, uh, I mean, he's... It's an overflow of, of Trinitarian love. Yeah, I, I can't prove this, but I suspect the angelic creation was for fellowship, uh, for to the purpose of fellowship, uh, but some went bad, and, you know, and rebelled against him and elevated themselves to his level. So, I mean, God never reacts to anything. Uh, but then the, the material creation was to the same point for fellowship. And uh, in, in part of the deal was God's going to stick his eye and you know, or stick his finger in Satan's eye and say, you're going to ruin this people, but I'm going to redeem them. So, but I mean, that's just, that's kind of fanciful. That's not, I mean, I can't prove that. Still, yeah, still doesn't quite answer the question. Either. No, it doesn't. I mean, I don't think I the question no that the question can't be answered. Whenever I hear for him, I think of love. If you do mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. for someone, you do it out of love. Well, yeah. uh, he knows. He has to know in advance that all this stuff, all this crap is going to happen. He's we're going to yeah. rebel. All this is going to happen. He I mean, he's all knowing. So, I mean, he's doing that. It's his fault. <laughs> He's the reason this is Well, we're we're. I'm going to jump ahead here. We're going to get into this later, but uh, uh, more plainly. But um, you know, it's it's put in place for the completion of his mission, and the end point of that mission is to gain a bride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that in that way, it is love. You know, strictly just love. Yeah. Well, this then would be part of that eternal covenant between the Father and the Son. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we're just in the mix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just remember getting into when I was a, a young Christian, getting into these long conversations where there would be no end to them of just, you know, if, then, if God is so loving, why did He create Satan? So, I mean, why did he allow Satan to happen? You know, then why, then why did he allow man to fall? Well, you know, I mean, obviously he, he's, he's in command of that. He, he also is the truth. And, you know, at the beginning of time, he allowed everything in creation to have its own will. Yeah. And he will not subvert that. The, the story of the um, wheat and the tear, I think, is a very strong illustration where the field owner, they say, well, you want us to uproot the tares now? Because that's what the world always asks about this all-powerful, loving God. Why didn't they take the bad people, Putin, and people like that out now? And I think it's because he's true to his word. Well, you know, and I'm guessing love, you know, love is a commitment somehow, you know, so, I mean, so in order, in order to allow the transfer of love, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, as far as people go, you know, God, love is one of the aspects of God. It's one of the fruit of the spirit. So is patience. So God is showing us patience uh, in His love. The, the real question is, why doesn't He destroy everybody? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, as far as people go, it's an answerable question. Uh, we don't know enough about the spiritual um, realm or creation to really be able to 
nail anything down. And yeah, we're certainly not going to settle it this morning. <laughs> so, uh, C.S. Lewis at one point, you know, he talks about these Boy Scouts that were walking during the war on the side of the road, and the bus loses control, and one of them kills 23 kids, I think, at the same time. And he says, you know, he said a sermon, who, who is responsible for that? And he goes like this. Who knows what he saved those kids from yeah. later on in life? I know. Yeah, we don't know. I said uh, that's part of the mystery. Yeah. We have no clue. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a potter. He can do whatever he wants to with a pot. Yes. So. He looks at death far differently. Do what? He looks at death. Far no. Different. Yeah. I mean, he's. Yeah. And as the church, we should look at at death far differently from other people. Well, let's let's uh, continue on. Charlotte, if you could read uh, verse fourteen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so once again, uh, John throws in that word logos. Um, the word is invoked again as being with us. Uh, I'm sure y'all all are aware that that, uh, that word um, dwelt among us. Uh, dwelt is actually the word tabernacled. So this is, uh, the tabernacle was where God resided upon earth. So John starts a a broad theme about where Jesus is, that's where God is. Um, And uh, uh, this will come up uh, here pretty quickly in in, uh, the next chapter. Um, And this is what uh, uh, fixes the lament of Job in nine, Job nine thirty two and thirty three, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Jesus is that arbiter. Mm-hmm. He is the solution to Job's lament, mm-hmm. and uh, really to all of mankind's lament. Mm-hmm. You know, mankind is uh, uh, striven to bring God down, uh, you know, our, in our entire history. Uh, but it wasn't through our efforts that when God actually arrived. Also, uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see, I just went over that. Um, okay, uh, now the church, the ancient church, considered verse 14 to be a reference to the transfiguration. Uh, the transfiguration is uh, not, it is, that's one of the uh, really big events that John does not record. He doesn't have a, a version of it like the synoptics do. Uh, but this is considered to be his reference to the transfiguration. And, Verse 14, uh, well, and, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, is the, is the mention of the transfiguration. Um, and that's another thing, another event that happened rather late, or that, I shouldn't say another, because I haven't done the first one yet. <laughs> this is the first time uh, where an event somewhat late in Christ's uh, walk on earth is reported here at the beginning. Hmm. So, I mean, John's already breaking his chronology. He's, he's jumping all over the place. 
so, the, which is, you know, why we're doing a study, uh, trying to look at it more thematically. Uh, and this is a hint of what's coming. So, uh, Charlotte, verse 17. For the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, so John throws in Moses. Uh, he's doing this for a reason. Um, he's uh, going to be dealing with Moses and the law in the middle part of his gospel. So he's kind of giving us a hint uh, about you know, uh, his organization. Okay, and now verse 29. Um, behold, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, this is John, mm-hmm. and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so John mm-hmm. uh, the Baptist invokes the Lamb of God, and he is the only person in all of Scripture who uses this phrase. Wow. Uh, he uses it twice. Uh, now John, the apostle, continues on with that uh, imagery in Revelation. So it really impressed him. <laughs> but uh, we've got John the Baptist here saying this. And, of course, John is uh, the uh, type of Elijah. Also, we've got the Lamb of God here. This invokes the Passover. So he's lumping together a lot of stuff here. Uh, you know, during the Passover, an empty chair is left for Elijah. Mm-hmm. So this is all tying together with uh, this Jewish uh, feasting tradition, or you know, it's one of the high feasts of the year. Um, so he gets it all together in like this one, one verse. Well, that also explains why he didn't need to cover the Transfiguration story because it's all right here anyway. You've got Elijah, and you've got Moses. Well, that's true, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. There's really no point to even have that story. Well, this is brilliant writing if you look at it. Yeah. It's all it's unbelievable. Oh, it is unbelievable. It's, it's one of the, probably the most poetic and beautiful pieces of literature we've copied down. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just unbelievable. It just goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing about the, a mystic is uh, you're very likely to... Uh, Break into poetry, <laughs> you know? but sometimes poetry is the clearest way of uh, expressing something. We've got a, a visitor out in the hallway. Nick has oh, I th- oh, Nick has got her. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so, any other thoughts about uh, any of that before we move on? Yes, uh, I'm just thinking in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve had a perfect life. But they chose to sin. God had God didn't make them sin because God is holy. But in their perfect state, they chose to go against God and sin. And there's many scriptures throughout the Bible that says that man is totally depraved. His heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? Could it be that God in his sovereignty has allowed this for us to see even in their state they still did not choose God mm-hmm. but he chose them as he has chose us and so even in Genesis in the very beginning here, 
It's about the Lamb of God already as he placed him in the garden mm -hmm. and his loving mercy and the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus was so uh, prominent there, I guess you could say, as he restored them, I think. But somehow it shows me a picture of even the very best state of man is altogether better. Mm -hmm. uh, without Christ, we can do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was in his plan. Right. You know, yeah, well, I mean, this was, again, again, all this was put in place for the sake of the crucifixion. You know, yes. Christ crucified before the foundations of the world. Oh, so. you know, if you think of God as completely timeless, you know, there was not a moment in time that he thought, oh, I'll create, I'll create an angel mm -hmm. called Lucifer. God has so, never had an idea. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's like he never you, can't, you can't fathom this stuff. You know, so, but he somehow, somehow, God understood that I'm creating Lucifer so he can become a serpent in the garden, mm -hmm. so he can tempt these people that I'm creating. Somehow, and he's never had a thought like that. He's actually one of the most beautiful angels with his pride. Yeah, yeah, he's like a Lucifer yeah. light, the angel yeah. of light. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so. I mean, he could have been. Conceivably, you could think of him as the first logos, you know, the, the logos that went back. We have a handout if you'd like one. You know what? I mean, almost, almost like you know, because this is in reference to life. He is the life of the world. Christ, you know, mm -hmm. Lucifer means life. You can almost think of him as being a prototype of fallen yeah. logos. Yeah. And and he hates God so much now. He's just trying to. Copies in Revelation over and over yeah. again. Creates his own Trinity. He you know, he's yeah. The yeah, it is. To God. Yeah. yeah, it's it's all deceit to try to fool us, fool even the elect, if that were possible. Um, okay. Well. Um, it's incomprehensible. Well, look, God even instigated the work of Job there. He even started right. himself. And. What do you do with these things in Scripture where it says that God created some vessels for, for his glory and some for destruction, that he created them to destroy them, uh, but some he did not choose for his glory? We may not understand it, but mm -hmm. God does these things. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh has his own will. We talked about man's free will, but mm -hmm. God hardened his heart. God can do anything he wants to. It's for us to believe the word of God. Comes back yeah. to faith, which is a gift of God. So Fa I don't understand it, but it's yeah. in the Bible. Pharaoh hardened his own heart about half the time, yeah. and when he didn't, God, God hardened his heart. <laughs> it was it was all leading up to Passover. Everything yeah. had to happen to get to Passover. God wanted Egypt to suffer ten plagues, mm. not knuckle under. Yeah. All right, Charlotte, uh, if you could read verse four. Please. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. <clears throat> okay, this starts a uh, practice of John's of describing Christ in abstract nouns, uh, not, not you know, uh, uh, things that you can actually touch and hold and store away and in. Uh, and the stuff like that, but abstract nouns. And here it's life. Uh, Christ is life itself. He is a physical manifestation of life 
itself. He's uh, using metaphor instead of simile. Yeah. Well, I don't. Th- I don't think it's even metaphor. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Period. And he is light uh, in in the, in the uh, terms of um, Genesis one three. I think it is where God creates light, or he separates the light from the darkness. Um, uh, he's also truth. He is the physical manifestation of truth. Uh, and and there's others. Um, and again, I'll invoke uh, John's first letter where he calls Christ the Logos of life, the Word of life. Uh, so um, this is this is odd speech, but he's he is a mystic, and he's uh, he's bringing it. Uh, and the the, log- the prologue also touches on each part of the triad here that you can see on your handout. The the three main themes that that uh, divide up this gospel. Uh, and this is this is going to be quick, Charlotte. Um, verses twelve through thirteen. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so that speaks to redemption. That's his first main theme here. That's the first leg of the triad. And then verse 17, we've already read, that that talks about Moses and the law. That's the second uh, section of John, uh, the theme of... uh, uh, what is Moses and the law's place? You know, within uh, the the uh, umbrella under the umbrella of Christ. And then we've already read verse fourteen. Uh, that speaks of the um, God the Son, uh, uh, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So that's God the Son, and that's that's not. I'm not totally happy with that title, but that's what I applied to the third section of John uh, before the epilogue. So he's setting up all three, all three uh, main themes here in the prologue. So, and that's, so that's what we've got. Uh, and then as we move on, uh, and this is what made coming up with the graphic so hard. <laughs> in the first three chapters, John offers an overview of each of these three legs of the triad. So, uh, and the basic work of redemption is found in chapter one. So, anybody, can anybody remember what happens in John chapter one? Well, first you have a prologue. <laughs> okay. And then, then what happens? He starts calling well, but first he's got John. He, he, he deals with John the Baptist. And then at the end he starts to call his people. So this is the work of redemption. The theme is, and the first, our first answer to our basic question of why did the Logos come and dwell among us, he came to call his own. He came to call his people, and he came to call them to life. So Charlotte, verses 11 through 13. Um, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay, so he came among the Jews. The Jews did not receive him. But there were those who did receive him, and they are his people. And he called, called them and, and gave them the right, what some translations say, the right to become the sons of God. So, let's, I, don't, I don't remember what Charlotte's uh, uh, translation said, but uh, let's, let's consider it as the word right. What, what does that mean to us as 21st century Americans? Dang it. Yeah. It was endowed by our creator. Right. I mean, our founding document uh, declares that we have rights. Darn it. And not only that, but they were given to us by God. So watch it, you know. And, uh, uh, and this is, I mean, we're, we're constantly spewing about this now, you know. Uh, the rights that are in the Constitution, the rights that we wish were in the Constitution, the rights that we uh, want only for ourselves and nobody else, you know. And it's just a crazy thing. Um, and it is true that the law had protections uh, for people and for property. But nowhere in Scripture is the word right ever applied to it, except here. And we do have a right, and it is God-endowed, and that is the right to become sons of God through Christ. And this, to me, this is just an incredible thing. So as we present the gospel and encourage people to believe, and if they and when they believe they jolly well have the right to become children of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the right to. Yeah. I mean, it's not... I mean, that's just... In, in the American context, to me, that's just mind-boggling. You have this right, and no one can take it from you. No. If you see children growing up, children have this... It's a warped sense of justice. You know, if somebody else gets this... Yeah. Well, it's fair. Yeah, that's that's the fairness argument, which yeah, is yeah. childish. Yeah, life is unfair. You know, so I don't know. You know, so I guess you could say that. Why is why do some people have the right to become children of God, but others don't? You know, fair. Well, the everybody. The evangelist is just out there preaching, and some people believe, and some people don't believe. You know, he's saying that right is only for those who receive and believe. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, those are the sheep who know his voice. Yes. Uh, they are the ones who come. They are his own. Yes. Well, plus there's a calling involved in this, too, if you go on. You know, when he's calling the, the, the different uh, uh, disciples to follow him in John. Mm-hmm. Speak to him. So part of, part of this right to become children of God is based upon the Holy Spirit coming to you and telling you to continue to be on. You know, there's mm-hmm. a work of the Spirit in you. In us yeah. that allows it to even happen. It's yeah. a gift of God. No Man, you're That's yeah, it's it's God. it's like the Spirit is saying, "You can do this. Yeah. This this is yours. Think a, Just take I it." I think another thing to look at is the fact that the the, the idea of children of God, in a way, that's a that's a title that's would normally be reserved for Christ, mm-hmm. but now. We partake in that too. So it's not just, you know, we have something that that 
really you would think only Christ would have, but we have it too because we have the right to be children of God, just like He's a child. He's He's God's son, and He's He's the you know Son of God. So He's a brother. Yeah, and in, in, in a weird way, that that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of it's kind of mind boggling. Yeah. Right, you know, mm -hmm. to try to wrap your brain around that. But, mm -hmm. In the Greek, this word means authority more than right. So I know in our American context, right obviously has a specific connotation, but authority in this case, and you connect that to Matthew 28, all authority in heaven has been given to Christ. Christ yeah. runs and gives us the authority to wow. be inheritors with him in the kingdom yeah. that God has given under his authority. Or to loose and bind on earth. Absolutely. Uh, we have that authority. Amazing. Christ gives us authority because we have good faith in him. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. so fearful that we don't even want to take advantage of it. Yes, it is fearful. <laughs> well, I mean, to, even to stop and, and think about it for a while. I mean, it's how often do we do that? You know, really consider. Up, man. We have total authority over that stuff. Yeah. In the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, we see as Connor. Mentioned, we see here at the end of the chapter um, Jesus calling his disciples, calling some of those or beginning to call those mm -hmm. who will uh, accept him, receive him, and uh, be his own people. Um, uh, Philip is mentioned early along with Andrew and Peter, and then we come to Nathaniel. Uh, so, Charlotte, verses 47 through 49. 47 through 49. Mm -hmm. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, um, Jesus' own received him not, but he sees those who will. And he saw Nathanael under the fig tree. Now, we didn't read it, but this was after Nathanael, you know, poo-pooed him as being from Nazareth. Uh, uh, now the fig tree is a symbol of Israel in a lot of places in scripture and parables and such um, and uh, he makes uh, he further uh, makes a clear compare and contrast between Nathaniel and his followers, Jesus' followers and Jacob slash Israel you know remember he's under the fig tree the symbol of Israel so, Charlotte, verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, did you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun. All right, that's Jacob's ladder. Yeah. So it's a clear con contrast and compare with Nathaniel. In Jacob. Jacob is the supplanter. Yeah. He is the cheat. Nathaniel is without deceit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it is all uh, to the point of something better has come. Mm -hmm. um, Nathaniel confesses Jesus as son of God. 
Jesus refers to himself as son of man. Uh, this is the archetypal man, you know, to steal from Plato. Going back to the Logos, Jesus, I mean, he acknowledges son of God, but he says, and yet I am archetypal man. I am, I am the second Adam. Um, he also solves that riddle of Jacob's ladder, the bridge between heaven and earth, mm-hmm. by identifying himself with is, that. Is Christ. Yeah. And he, this comes up again in chapter 4, uh, which is where John really in earnest starts his, his uh, kind of dissection of that first theme, the, the redemptive plan. Um, so, yes, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. It is in him that heaven and earth meet. It is in him where righteousness and peace kiss. Wow. Uh, and this leads us into the second theme, which is Moses and the law. Uh, and the overview is in chapter 2. And we'll start that next week. Okay. <laughs>